Thanks, Nick. And uh, let's pray as we turn to God's word. Father God, the unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. Direct our footsteps according to your word and let no sin rule over us. Make your face shine on your servants and teach us your decrees. Amen. I recall a cartoon on, in a church leadership magazine from early in ministry. It had a couple of church members admiring a statue of a minister holding his Bible. I think it was entitled, Tomb of the Unknown Pastor. And the tagline said something like this, He finished his ministry without scandal and his sermons before noon. We'd all like to finish well. Uh, to retire well, if you can look that far ahead, uh, perhaps to be missed when you leave the workplace, but to be secure enough to retire without anxiety and to be able to hang on to some old friendships. And when we move from retirement to heaven, well, we'd like to hear the words of Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into your master's joy. And we'd like our ministers to retire well too. Not cut down by scandal, not cynical and worn out by a constant sense of failure or criticism. We've already seen from 1 Timothy 3 a month ago how much character matters. And a fortnight ago in chapter 4, there was encouragement for all, but especially ministers, to train and grow in the gospel. Our section today, from chapter 5, gives us more idea how we might see ministers finishing strong. It says those who labour at leading and teaching should receive real respect and be held really responsible. And of course many of those principles for how to view and support our leaders are pretty applicable among ourselves for finishing our race well too. And the first principle I've drawn from this section of 1 Timothy is the need to give our leaders real respect. Look at 1 Timothy 5 and verse 17. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honour, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. Now back in chapter 3 I said that overseer and elder seems pretty much mostly to be used interchangeably throughout the New Testament to speak of church leadership. And so we're not here so much talking about all older Christians, but those involved in directing the affairs of the church. And Paul particularly identifies those who work or labour at preaching and teaching. Not every elder in a church will have preaching and teaching as his main job. All should be honoured and respected, but there's a double honour, it seems, especially for those who shed spiritual sweat over pastoral leadership and teaching as their main occupation. And the double honour there seems to be expressed in terms of pay and protection. The rightness of paying certain church leaders comes out in verse 18. For scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain and the worker deserves his wages. I declare a conflict of interest. I am a minister in receipt of pay and allowances and I'm so grateful for how that's let me provide for my family and do my ministry without the distraction of a secular job. 
Not every minister has that privilege. And I'm flattered by being compared to an ox, which would have been a valuable piece of farming equipment in the days before tractors. The story here is that oxen dragged a heavy wooden sledge over the cut stalks of grain to crack the seed shells and so separate the kernels of grain from the husks. Farmers who were highly focused on short-term profit muzzled their oxen to stop them munching while they worked because that would have left less grain to harvest and sell. In Deuteronomy 25 verse 4, quoted here, the Old Testament law, God showed through Moses that he cared for the welfare of animals doing very hard work, much more than the ultra-efficiency demanded by bean-counting farming consultants. When Paul reflected on that same verse in 1 Corinthians 9, he claimed God said this not only for animals, but also gave it as an analogy for gospel preachers. Moo. The other fascinating thing about 1 Timothy 5 verse 18 is that the only place you can find the second quote about the worker deserving his wages is on the lips of Jesus. We find it written down in Luke 10 and verse 7, which means Paul consciously puts a contemporary quote from Christ on a par with Old Testament words as both being in the one singular category of Scripture. And he says, not that Scripture said past tense, but that it says present tense, the Spirit of God still speaks afresh today through words written long ago in Scripture. Charles Swindle writes, if a church values excellent teaching, strong preaching and spiritual leadership, the congregation will give its leaders sufficient financial provision to devote a normal work week to the church's ministries. Thank you for doing that so consistently at St Michael's. The second respect given to church leaders is to protect them from unjustified attacks. And this principle of respect is illustrated in verse 19. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it's brought by two or three witnesses. It's not saying that church leaders never fail, but it does hint that their prominence and the hard things they may have to say or do can make them a target for criticism and attack. I always tell my colleagues to look for the grain of truth in any criticism, even if you blow some unfair chaff away. But for others, before acting on an accusation, we ask if it's supported by evidence, like the testimony of extra witnesses. We shouldn't overreact to every little niggle. Rather, it's a pattern of sin or failure we're alert to that more than one person has noticed. Now, don't read this verse in an overly wooden way. For example, the Old Testament identifies a few categories of offence where there might well be only one witness available, the victim, for example, in some cases of sexual assault. And in such a case, a judge may well accept 
the sole testimony of the weaker, vulnerable person. We, of course, can consult other kinds of evidence, like a paper trail. And so some ministers, sadly, have been busted for sexual misconduct, not because any other witness saw it, but because of a trail of text messages or emails coming to light which made it obvious what had happened. On the other hand, of course, such documentary or forensic evidence could also contradict an unfair complaint that a witness brought. So broadly, this is an encouragement to follow due process whenever dispute arises. It's right to take complaints of misconduct or failure seriously, but gossip's improper. And rumours are rarely enough. Second-hand reports do not normally enable us to take action. And in the absence of clear evidence to the contrary, you know, when you feel leaders or others let you down, can I encourage you, it's often better to assume their incompetence rather than their conspiracy. That is, they're probably more likely overworked than being malicious. And when you look into a problem, remember there is often another side to a story, so hear it out. A leader can be a target, so it's fair to respect them with due protection. But the second point adds that leaders should be held really responsible. Another way of saying it is leaders must be truly accountable for their actions. The need to hold leaders responsible comes out clearly in verse 20. But those elders who are sinning, you are to reprove before everyone so that the others may take warning. When the proper evidence is collected and sin is clear, then we must hold people to account. And in the case of leaders where continuing sin could have a public impact on a congregation and its life, the rebuke might need to be done publicly. Public appointment to ministry in a church in return for respect and payment gives a minister a unique platform and privilege. But responsibility goes with privilege, which means you could expect public warning or rebuke if a problem of significance occurs. Now, public rebuke and public apology is really hard. You'll need the due process diligence before going public. Notice in verse 20, it's a present tense, those who are sinning, suggesting an ongoing pattern again. Perhaps we don't rush to publicise a a one-off mistake of a minor nature. And it says here it's how we deal with sin, not just inefficiency, ineffectiveness. There may even be some exceptions to the need for a public rebuke. Uh, Sometimes, like I said, a problem's not publicly significant and is nipped in the bud early. But especially where a leader's sin hurts particular victims... We must take their welfare into account. And so sometimes there may be a need for some discretion and privacy to protect the victims. But you know when a leader is just you know, quietly shifted elsewhere, they move off under a cloud, it only invites speculation and gossip. Such lack of transparency has no educational value. 
Back in chapter 1 and verses 19 and 20, Paul publicly named some false teachers, Hymenaeus and Alexander. And it seems they were expelled from the congregation, but the aim of such a serious step was to be taught not to blaspheme, teaching them a lesson. In other words, the hope was to see them repent and maybe even be restored in the congregation. Here, in verse 20, the aim of public discipline is also preventative of future sin as a deterrent to others from going down the same pathway because they see how seriously the congregation takes sin. Friends, it is serious. Look how Paul underlines Tim's duty in verse 21. I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favouritism. In the presence of God, it's like using bold type. And Christ Jesus makes it all caps. And elect angels watching on just underlines it because it reminds us of the final judgment day. No partiality means really without prejudice, literally no pre-judging. So hearing all the evidence, not jumping to conclusions. And without favouritism means you, you never say, oh, I, I know my friend, he wouldn't have done that. I won't hear a word of criticism. No, no. Every leader can be tempted by sin. So don't allow personal friendship to mean you end up running a protection racket for your mates. The kind of flip side comes in verse 22, which is to appoint leaders slowly in the first place. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands and do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Some also think this could refer to the restoration of a fallen leader. Well, certainly that should never be rushed. Forgiveness through the precious blood of Christ is always possible with repentance and such restitution as you can make. But restoration to leadership mustn't be rushed and often is not possible at all. But I find the laying on of hands generally associated with initial appointment to ministry. You see it, Acts 13.3, or back in this book, chapter 4, verse 14. And So I think it really is a reminder to appoint leaders slowly in the first place. It's true that the potential return of Jesus at any time, could be tonight, gives an urgency to the gospel preaching task. But if Jesus dies, well then a leader's going to be in place until retirement. And so there's no rush to get him to the start time. With decades ahead, there should be plenty of time to observe and really test them before appointment. I really think it's a bit like why parents are nervous when there's a whirlwind romance for their child. Because, as it says in this verse, you share in whatever happens to your children. So, if, for example, you've nurtured a daughter, you don't want to see her hurt. And, in fact, you know the whole family will suffer if she makes a mistake that way. 
And so we say, well, don't, don't rush, sweetheart. And by the way, I think this explains what seems like a big red herring in verse 23. Stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. Where did that come from? Well, the best guess, it's from the end of verse 22's mention of not compromising your purity by being associated, sharing with the sins of others. And this may have led Tim into a strict abstinence from alcohol. We do know, don't we, from chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, that there were some false teachers there demanding abstinence from certain substances and from marriage. And here Paul says it's not alcohol that's the problem, but drunkenness. Not, by the way, that this verse 23 is a big endorsement of social drinking, because actually it's pointing out it's the medical use of alcohol that's okay. In a world, remember, where secure hygienic water supplies were not always available and so the preservative effect of alcohol in fermented wine was less likely to get contaminated or or to upset a weak stomach. Well, thirdly then, we come to a kind of proverbial wisdom or reasoning that concludes this whole section, verse 24 and 5. The sins of some are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds are obvious and even those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden forever. Isn't Australia experiencing that as a nation at the moment with the Inspector General's report into the Defence Forces and those alleged war crimes in Afghanistan? The Afghanistan terrorism sins, they were obvious. But it seems some Australian soldiers' sins, a minority, has only come out later. And we have to hope that the great good that the vast majority of soldiers will eventually be obvious. So on the one hand, this verse tells us to expect sometimes our judgments about other people will be mistaken. Sometimes people do hide their sins. People wear masks. I'm not meaning the COVID mask, it's okay. I mean putting on a front. So verse 24 warns us about what we call today grooming. You know, some leaders can even use their position of respect as a cover to present themselves so nicely while hiding their selfish, exploitative, abusive intents. We should be wary of this. Again, it's why we don't rush to a point, why we do listen to criticism and take allegations seriously, but it's also why we protect people with due process, looking for proper evidence and not just accepting every spray from an overly critical spirit. But good will also out. Sometimes it's obvious. You generally don't need to boast about your goodness. Sometimes it takes a little while to be seen, which actually is really another encouragement not to rush to appoint a leader because, you know, you fill the vacancy quickly and sometimes that means you might have overlooked a hidden gem where the diamond is still a little in the rough, as they say. But the real final comfort here, I think, 
is that it will eventually all come out in the wash. That is, in the final judgment, God will make sure it's all seen for what it is. Even hidden truth will out. In Mark chapter 8 and verse 38, Jesus said he'll be coming, he'll be returning as the Son of Man in the glory of the Father with the holy angels. The trio mentioned in verse 21. That's when Jesus said he'll judge those who've been ashamed of him and his words, and I take it who've disrespected him in other ways, in what he calls this adulterous and sinful generation we live in, which we stand among. And of course the ultimate comfort in that therefore is not in my own performance. The ultimate comfort at the judgment day is in justification by faith alone justification by faith in Christ what he did for us on the cross not in our own deeds not in my own ministry I can stand only as a Christian let alone as a leader because Jesus died for my sins trusting him is what justifies me and exonerates me forgiveness by grace then frees me from defensiveness about my failures. They're covered by Christ. And it's what can start the process of transformation into being a responsible leader or a responsible example that others can respect.